This week on the show, did Linux kill commercial Unix? We ask. 3Node Glosterfs setup on FreeBSDs, what we cover. OpenBSD on the Lenovo ThinkPad X1 Nano, the first generation. NetBSD on the Edge Router Lite. TLS Mastery, first draft is done, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 390, Commercial Unix Killer, recorded on the 10th of February 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone, peddling GameStop uh, short options or not. Uh, we are freshly back with a new episode for you, waiting for the next stock crash. Um, the headlines this week is something that we will probably talk a little bit longer about, which is, did Linux kill commercial Unix? Yeah, so this is a not brand new article over at HowToGeek, talking about how the sales of commercial Unix have fallen off a cliff, and is it all because of Linux? And I don't think that's entirely the case. Um, you know, a lot of commercial operating system sales in general have fallen because of the availability of open source operating systems, or just a change in the way people use operating systems and software, right? Like we're even getting towards, you know, Apple doesn't really sell the operating system separate uh, as it is. Uh, and, you know, Microsoft is moving more and more towards a, a subscription model rather than, you know, paying per copy of the operating system. And then, you know, the availability of open source versions of Unix, uh, like OpenSolaris and, and BSD and so on, uh, meant that it was awfully hard to have a commercial Unix. And in general, just the industry around it moved more towards this model of you subscribe for support for the operating system rather than just paying for each copy of the operating system. Yeah, that's right. So I think it, it you know, while Linux had something to do with the, the commercial Unixes being less popular and so on, I don't know that it was really all Linux is doing. It was more just the shift in the way operating systems are used, consumed, built, and licensed. Yeah, and I think it's also a question of costs. I mean, if you can get something for the same or for zero price, then it's probably a big deal if you can reduce your licensing costs with a free operating system. Right, and you know, for a lot of that, the difference is, you know, uh, an open source operating system isn't necessarily free. It's, you know, free isn't beer, but it's also, you know, if it breaks, you get to keep both halves um, <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, and it became important that there are services and so on around it. And, you know, that's makes a, uh, a difference there. Uh, and I think having, it was more that just the way people bought or licensed or used operating systems changed. Uh, and just the way that they get sold changed as well. And if the traditional companies didn't keep up with that, just continuing to depend on, you know, licensing it to people the way Oracle does, mm -hmm. then they ran into more trouble. Yeah, I imagine you had to like um, upgrade your operating system if you want to use more functionality. Oh, you're using this kernel module now. Well, that costs you. Or you want to use this feature of ZFS. Well, insert coin, please. Yeah. And yeah, if, I mean, it all started with Unix uh, in a commercial way for the for the big players that 
actually needed the people behind those companies to you know provide the support and the help they uh, gave but nowadays uh, a lot of these things can be done by you know computer enthusiasts and uh, people knowledgeable enough to uh, share their knowledge in this free operating system space and for many of the uh, users this is enough and they don't need this high level of support. They never called the commercial Unix people and had a question there because there's a lot of forums out there and people willing to help. Yeah, but it depends on your use case. Sure. I mean, cannot uh, solve everything with that. Speaking of this and, and, you know, uh, for a long time, it wasn't that easy to be able to get commercial support for FreeBSD, but that's where Clara Systems comes in. Mm. But uh, (laughs) over on our website in our article section we have a new post about wireguard and uh, tom jones has written a very nice article here about how to make simple and secure vpns using wireguard on freebsd mm-hmm. uh, so this is mostly about using the user space go version of wireguard uh, although it does mention very recently uh, netgate sponsored some work to get the in-kernel driver for wireguard on freebsd uh, and with 13.0 that'll become available for uh, people to start using as well and that's quite a bit faster although you know depending what you're using the vpn for that might not matter but uh when you start getting into sending a lot over the vpn it will and so it's nice that that's available now and so thanks to netgate yep and i like the simple and secure part because many of the you know vpn solutions from earlier years uh were kind of complicated to set up and with this now it's simple and secure and a lot faster thanks to the work they did there. And I remember a lot of people asking us when we didn't have that kernel module yet for WireGuard, hey, the other Unixes have that. Can we get this into the BSDs as well or in FreeBSD? Yep. And now it's here. And, you know, thanks to companies that make use of FreeBSD for sponsoring that work to make it happen. Yeah, and it helps uh, everyone. The, the people behind PFSense that did that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the, the big advantage of WireGuard is that it's A, a lot easier to set up. Uh, like, you know, if you've ever tried to set up own VPN, it's not that difficult, but there's a lot of steps. Whereas WireGuard is like, hey, you have the two peers, you trade information and you just, here's a one line thing and you're connected. Uh, and, you know, it has a whole thing with just make a QR code that contains it all and you're good to go, uh, which is a lot nicer. And, you know, WireGuard was built using much more modern uh, crypto stuff. So it uses all the fastest algorithms and so on, you know. For a long time, OpenVPN used Blowfish, which, well, pretty secure, uh, is quite aged now and just doesn't support the kind of uh, CPU-based accelerations that you get with something like AES-GCM and so on. Yep. And so uh, people, I mean, it came at the right uh, time when people needed a VPN into a company or back to their home offices, wherever they are. And so, or to friends and family to fix their computers. And so, uh, yeah, it couldn't have been... Uh, done at a worse time so it's definitely good to have another thing is uh, good to have, that's good to have is probably something that is a bit replicated and we found a tutorial for you to set up a three node replicated cluster fs cluster on freebsd Ooh. yeah of course this could probably be more uh nodes but i guess three is a good way of starting out so they say here i think it's the minimum yeah yeah uh, in ClusterFS, or GFS, which is the open source equivalent to Microsoft's distributed file system, uh, which is a service that replicates the contents of a file system in real time from one server to another. The clients connect to any server and changes made to a file will replicate automatically to the other ones. It's similar to something like rsync or SyncThing, but much more automatic and transparent. FreeBSD port has been made available since version 3.4, 
and currently this is uh, at the time of this writing 8.0 and 9.0 being released soon so what do you need for this a workstation or desktop that is capable of virtualization okay uh, freebsd 12.2 or later depends on when you do this uh, 16 gigs of ram at least and 64 is uh, of gigabyte is free space that's probably your minimum starting point the more is always better and root access of course because some of these need root privileges to install and make changes to the system okay uh, for previous versions of FreeBSD after 11.0, uh, it will run there, uh, but works best, of course, with minimum of three hosts and, of course, the latest patch levels and stuff like this. Okay, uh, so to summarize that is that Beehive will be used to run virtual machines of uh, the cluster of nodes, and it's a great way to familiarize yourself with the process before going out and playing with real virtual machines or physical hardware. And this guide has uh, four parts. The first is initializing the host machine for Beehive, then the second one is creating and starting the VMs. Uh, third is deploying and configuring ClusterFS. And the fourth is setting up the clients. So I think we covered the Beehive parts many many other tutorials earlier. Yeah, so this is using a VM Beehive, and it's just a series of commands to create a switch, put your interface in it, and download and start the, the guests. So yeah, we can skip over that. Yeah. So he named his uh, three test machines here, Sun, Earth, and Moon. Oh, nice. Um, makes sense. <laughs> so we created those three machines and started them up. Then at the console, uh, he set up networking on, you know, different IP address on the same subnet on each of the three machines, uh, got DNS working and so on, created a host file so that he can easily, you know, use the short name of each machine, uh, and then gets towards setting up cluster. Yeah, so when all three machines can find each other on the net, then you can start preparing your ClusterFS volume, aka brick. Don't brick your machine, but uh, this is the name they use here. A ClusterFS brick is a normally uh, is called normally the block device with a file system that will be used to create a replicated ClusterFS volume. And of course, this is uh, on FreeBSD. We use ZFS as the underlying file system because we want the security that it gives us on this level and the replication uh, is on ClusterFS bricks. So uh, in this case, they use a block or a volume, a ZFS volume, as a starting point, and of course, enable that and set compressions and the usual ZFS things that are pretty much straightforward. And then you do the package install ClusterFS, that's the software that you need, you enable the service and start it, and then you can run the cluster commands. So on the Sun machine, not Sun Microsystems, but the machine called Sun. You run cluster peer probe Earth and cluster peer probe Moon, and on Earth uh, probe the Moon and uh, with all the other machines in there finding each other, and it will return success, success. Uh, of course, it always works <laughs> when these tutorials are written, but uh, your mileage may vary. But let's assume it does, and so you can ask the peer status, cluster peer status, number of peers found two. That sounds good. And it gives you a bit more information with uh, UUIDs and stuff like that. Okay, then you can create the replicated volume. Uh, that's a bit of a longer command. So you say cluster volume create replicated, replica three, because you have three machines or three peers. And then you provide uh, sun, uh, earth, and moon. Yeah, so for you uh, say you want three copies of all the blocks, and then you say hostname colon path on that number of hosts, and it will uh, create a volume out of it. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay, then you add the clients because at this point you are still uh, on your own machines. Uh, now let's add clients to it. And the clients share access to the replicated share using UFUSEFS. 
and there's a mount cluster FS involved there. Uh, making sure that you're not getting into the dreaded split brain situation where everyone thinks he or she is the master and no one <laughs> knows about the other ones or what's the latest state on each of these nodes. And so you um, run FuseFS and uh, load the module for that. Then you install ClusterFS. Didn't we do that before? Or is that a separate? Yeah. Ah, okay. Twice what doesn't hurt. Looking at? Oh, that's on the, ah, yes, on the clients, of course. This is a client. This yes. is a fourth machine. Ah, yes. Okay. And then you can do your uh, mount ClusterFS, which mounts the replicated um, storage on your machines. And yeah, then they show... Uh, how to test the replication by creating a couple files and see if they all appear in the other machines. Cool. That's nice and straightforward. Yeah, and they also show using the options to say, you know, here's our list of backup servers. So if one of them's down, automatically try the others and so on. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, there's probably, yeah, they mentioned in the closing remarks, there's some annoyances with some Linuxisms in there. Uh, but uh, it seems to be working well enough on FreeBSD. Yeah, I remember looking at it on an older version of uh, Gluster, and it was there was just some weirdness around like dir name and base name and the way those worked on FreeBSD. And then I wrote some patches, but then the way FreeBSD did it improved to not be the, you know, it clobbers the memory in place or whatever. Uh, and so it was interesting. Mm. Okay, but anyway, any data you host with ClusterFS, the last uh, sentence in the remarks is uh, should be safe. But like any good sysadmin, you should be keeping backups. Yes. You know, just because it's on ZFS doesn't mean you don't need a backup. And just because you've replicated it with Gluster and that Gluster is on ZFS, you still need a backup. RAID is not a backup. Replication is not a backup. Snapshots are not a backup. You want a real backup. Uh, you know, see Tarsnap later in the show. Yep, just teasing here. <laughs>
depth and uh, the thickness went from 14.95 millimeters to 13.87 millimeters. Very strange to be talking about these two dimensions in inches and that dimension in millimeters. But <laughs> I think it's just because you, the inches is a stupid way to measure things. <laughs> anyway, on the left side of the laptop, you get two uh, Thunderbolt 3 enabled USB 4, USB-C ports and a headphone jack. The PCIe Ethernet device and its required dongle are no longer available, which is not really needed these days uh, with non-Thunderbolt USB-C Ethernet adapters being able to max out the gigabit connection anyway. So you don't need a fancy dongle, but you still need USB-C Ethernet dongle. So that's kind of sad. But anyway, uh, on the right side uh, are just the fan vent and a power button, which is now mounted uh, from the middle of the side to the or move from the middle to the far right edge of the screen. I find the power button very hard to press now, especially to hold it uh, for a few seconds if you don't want to do a hard power off. But it does have a Dolby Atmos sound system. Remains, uh, you know, unfortunate branding still prevent, uh, present on the left side of the keyboard deck. Uh, there are two up-firing speakers on the bottom of the keyboard deck with sound uh, excellent and plenty loud. Mm. And the 13-inch... Uh, 1260 by 1350 matte non-touch IPS display uh, looks great and has the same horizontal resolution as that 13-inch MateBook X that uh, we had talked about of uh, Joshua's before. The resolution is high enough to use 1.5x scaling, but low enough to not draw too much power from the battery. Uh, it can also be very bright, up to 450 nits, and uh, most of the time indoors, I'm using it at about 40% brightness, and I did some cal uh, color calibration and it wasn't too far off the factory defaults. The Nano has a Think shutter device to physically cover up the webcam lens, uh, same as the X1 Carbon did, and uh, retains the black ThinkPad branding on the keyboard deck. Uh, screen hinge is tight and cannot really be opened one-handed due to the reduced weight of the laptop. However, the lid does not wobble uh, when you type, which is, you know, not something you want mm. to be happening. <laughs> the keyboard still seems full-size, though the function row keys are shorter. The X1 Nano... Uh, Further reduces the X1 Carbon's key travel from 1.5 millimeters to 1.35 millimeters, though I still find it very enjoyable to type on and uh, retains that chunky tactile feel. The keys don't have uh, a bit of creaky, or the keys do have a bit of a creaky sound when typing or just moving fingers on keys without pressing them, uh, but the keyboard is backlit and offers two levels of adjustment using the function plus spacebar or using uh, WSCon's keyboard that backlight on OpenBSD or something like XDimmer on other operating systems. He says, I'm using the far superior soft rim style ThinkPoint cap. He's got a picture of the two different versions. Uh, that was made for my X1 Carbon and is probably a hair too tall for the lower profile X1N1 keyboard, but it doesn't uh, stick up past the keys nor contact the screen when it's closed, so it's probably fine. Uh, it says a square USB attached fingerprint sensor sits next to the touchpad, which I've honestly forgotten about until I was just looking at it. Uh, wireless connectivity is provided by a non-socketed Intel AX201 uh, chip, which is 802.11ax uh, Wi-Fi, and a Bluetooth 5.1 chip. The NVMe SSD is a Western Digital SN530, uh, which is a removal and uses the M2 2242 form factor. Uh, mounted under a heatsink. You notice that there is no audible coil whine, which is nice. The fan has a tendency to come on rather eagerly when the CPU is allowed 
to use this full uh, range of frequencies with turbo and to remain on for what seems like a long time even after the CPU intensive operations have stopped and the surface of the laptop is cool to the touch. Fortunately, the fan is rather quiet, about 33 decibels, uh, about an inch from the exhaust outlet on the highest setting, and has a uh, neutral white noise sound without the high-pitched whining you get from some. So. It also has uh, a bunch of notes here about the firmware and about support on OpenBSD. He says the usual round of PCI device ID additions were made to IWX driver to get that uh, AX201 Wi-Fi device to attach. There's some minor issues with DPMS that caused the screen to take a few seconds longer to wake up uh, after being powered off, but that's not a big deal. He says he's been experimenting with adjustable fan control using the ACPI ThinkPad to calm the fan down, but doesn't touch that. Uh, and he's also adding support for Intel HWP as a modern replacement for um, performance scaling. But in general, audio works, battery is good, Bluetooth doesn't work, uh, fingerprint sensor, nobody's really played with yet, but he just disabled it in BIOS to stop it showing up. The keyboard backlight uh, works via the built-in control, but also using uh, the keyboard backlight controls built into OpenBSD. Hibernate works with the ZZZ command. The SSD is great. Currently, the firmware doesn't support ACPI S3 suspend, so uh, you can hibernate, but not suspend currently. The Thunderbolt 3 support, he says kinda. Any device attached at boot time will work with OpenBSD, but Hotplug is not supported since they don't have the NHI driver yet. Uh, the touchpad is an ELAN I2C and works with the IMT driver. The track point is supported by the PMS driver. USB is great. He says the two USB-C ports work fine using a Lenovo USB-C UltraDock, which provides charging USB Ethernet via the URE driver and uh, connects the dongle for his wireless mouse all over a single USB-C cable. Video works with Intel DRM. Like you said, everything generally works, except for the DPMS stuff means the screen takes a couple extra seconds to boot up, but that's not a big deal. Uh, the webcam works uh, and can be hard disabled in the BIOS, uh, and the wireless works uh, with that uh, IWX driver, uh, but it's non-removable, so you can't replace the chip like you can in some other Lenovo's. Ah, okay. Good to know. Yeah, so support is decent, and uh, yeah, for people in the market for a new hardware uh, laptop on OpenBSD, this is your yeah, support. You know, I've been a fan of my 13-inch uh, ThinkPad. The I have an X270, uh, but I think it's called an X3-something now? I don't know. Anyway, um, so, you know, that form factor, the size in general sounds okay, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather have the real Ethernet port than a thinner laptop. Yeah, so I definitely appreciate a lighter laptop. That's that's why I switched from a T five thirty, which is a fifteen inch thing with really heavy, to this nice light uh, X two seventy. But I don't know that I want to go that much thinner. Uh, then again, I don't have to travel with my laptop every day. Like I I travel with my laptop to go to conferences, which is not something I've done for over a year and a bit now. Mm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you can only go so so thin. At one point, you have a you know a stamp sized laptop. <laughs> That's just right, ridiculous. It, the thinner you go, the more you're giving up, and the more money you're spending on the thinness. Yeah. Uh, and you know, every person's breaking point for that is going to be different. Uh, and mine is a lot different than everybody's. But that's perfectly fine. Okay. Cool. Uh, then we have something uh, from NetBSD uh, running on the Edge Router Lite. 
And this is uh, reporting for MIP64 architecture, of course, on NetBSD current. Now has pre-built Octeon bootable images in NetBSD 10.0, they will appear. And for the EVB MIPS port, so they decided here to finally give it a try. They've been heavily running OpenBSD uh, Octeon on their Edge Router Lite for a few years now. And have previously published some notes, including more detail about the CPU. And uh, contrary to the OpenBSD Octeon port, which is very stable and runs SMP kernels, uh, things are a little less polished on the NetBSD side for this platform. The system runs an, uh, a uniprocessor kernel and there are still some stability issues. Uh, you see a picture when you go to the blog post uh, of the thing. Uh, here's U-Boot. smaller than I thought. <laughs> yeah, it's quite compact, but has all the important stuff for a router. Uh, so they give us the U-Boot configuration to boot the image. So you need to do a bit of a set boot command. Uh, fat load, USB 0, uh, it's all provided in the show notes. And then it starts saving the environment to the flash uh, and erasing the flash. It's done then. And of course, then the sectors uh, give you the written parts. And on the first boot, the system automatically expands the file system, uh, growing FS only once. But yeah, then... so it's a, a pre-built image. So when you put it on there, it will basically grow FS uh, to take up the rest of the disk. Mm -hmm. And you get to your familiar login prompt for posterity and also the output of running file on executables. So you can see that it's a 32-bit ELF binary, PI executable with MIPS and 32 MIPS 3 version 1, dynamically linked and stuff like that. Cool. For the record, OpenSSL speed benchmark results are also available. So in case uh, you are interested in this, you can see how much it can push. Uh, system message buffer is also there to see which devices are there and which ones are supported. So yeah, this is cool. And if I guess NetBSD does a bit of a work in this area, then it's probably the same uh, kind of support that OpenBSD has. Then uh, we have some news from Michael W. Lucas. This is from January 25th. Uh, so I think things have progressed a bit more since then, but and he says the first draft of TLS Mastery is finally done. And he says, I've completed a rough cut of TLS Mastery and I'm now looking for tech reviewers who know about TLS. If you know more about TLS than the above average sysadmin and would like to review the manuscript, please drop me a note. I'm guessing, uh, I don't know if it'll be too late. It's if, if you're a good reviewer, it's probably worth reaching out anyway. Um, he says, I'll be collecting, oh, sorry. He'll be collecting feedback until February 28th. So yes, there is still time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So get it in. Um, then he'll integrate all that and make a real book out of it. I've given the manuscript to the sponsors as well, plus the digital readers uh, who subscribed on Patreon. That's providing you don't need uh, blockchain for proof of work. <laughs> uh, if you're a sponsor, it's in your account. Uh, there are three different PDFs, uh, the one for Windows and Mac, the one for anything embedded, and the one uh, that's printed to PDF, uh, the one that should work uh, for your whatever your combination of PDF viewer and OS is. You know, one of those should work. Uh, the The advantage to the standard one is that it's formatted for reading on the computer, and the embedded one is formatted for uh, a center screen and so on. The advantage to both of those is that it's got the text, so it's searchable, whereas the one that's, you know, print to PDF is basically a series of pictures of the images, uh, but it means it'll work on things that otherwise it might not work. Anyway, it says, next up, I'm hammering on getting Git Sync Murder. I've been waiting for that for a couple of years now, so I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, and then he says, plus I fixed some annoying website issues and work on getting his uh, Montague Portal Omnibus into production and then maybe clean his office. 
yeah, maybe Lucas went a bit far with the last part, but uh, yeah, cleaning is always <laughs> a good idea unless you really do it. Um, yeah, so congratulations. So yeah, if you uh, support Michael W. Lucas on Patreon, you'll already have a preview copy. Uh, if you don't like Patreon, he's also set up his homebrew thing so you can do sponsorships directly through his website uh, using a variety of, of methods. Uh, a bigger portion of it ends up uh, with Michael that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we will let you know uh, when that book is out. And so you have everything that you always wanted to not know about uh, TLS. Okay, let's move into the Beastie Bits section. And we have here a thread on the FreeBSD desktop for Pinebook Pro on the FreeBSD forums. And this uh, gives us pretty much everything to get started with uh, starting the and getting the ISO images and then uh, yeah, moving really quickly into the actual subject. So there's a lot of uh, in there, but I think you will get the right information that you want with like setting up and config lines and that should gives you a, uh, give you a pretty nice uh, desktop for the Pinebook. Yeah, uh, so this user has made their own images of it. Uh, there's a pretty stock image of current that works uh, on the Pinebook Pro, and then there's a version uh, already set up with a desktop, so it comes with a minimal version of XFCE and so on. Uh, and then to get it going, you have the options of uh, using Switch 24, and they have a picture showing you where that is on the on the device so that you can <laughs> flip it. Uh, that will stop it booting from EMMC and that way it will boot from the SD card. Uh, or you can actually burn the FreeBSD image directly to the EMMC flash uh, and then it can boot from there. It mostly depends if, you know, how much you want to give over the whole machine to FreeBSD until you've tried it a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, and then he's posted a follow-up with a, uh, a version of 12.2 Stable. Uh, that works on the Pinebook Pro as well. Uh, although on the older version, USB 3 and USB C don't work. So probably want to go with the 13 version. I see. Very good. Uh, then, um, oh, there's FOSS Asia time, March 2021. Of course, this is happening virtual. Uh, but this is on March 13th. And oh, through Sunday the 24th. First, yeah, March. so it's a whole week. Mm. Starts on Saturday the 13th of March and goes until Sunday the 21st of March. Yeah, I didn't notice that at first. <laughs> it's it's long. It's yeah. a week long thing. That's a long time for an online event. But... Yep. And so, uh, topics cover uh, COVID 19 and open health tech, artificial intelligence, hardware, firmware, and chips, cloud container DevOps, networking, cloud and microservices, databases, science and applications kernel and platforms, there's the BSD in there, uh, privacy, security, digital sovereignty, compliance, web and mobile technologies, blockchain, and design. So there's something, I think, for everyone in there. Very cool. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, very good. So that conferences still are going on in a different format and are not canceled completely. Uh, then we have news from NetGate, uh, WireGuard for PFSense software. This is one of the leading, well, WireGuard is one of the leading requested features for PFSense software, is now available for preview. So it's not in the next release yet, but preview. Uh, and in PFSense Community Edition 2.5.0 development snapshot, you can test it out. Uh, it's sponsored by NetGate. The development of a kernel resident WireGuard implementation for FreeBSD and PFSense has been over a year of effort in making. 
Uh, it has been committed to FreeBSD on November 29, 2020. Thanks for that. And can be previewed in PFSense. Uh, the source code is available now via PFSense public code repository on GitHub. This is github.com slash PFSense. And you can also find binary images uh, by January 2021 for those who are tracking the 2.0 development branch. Uh, 2.5.0, sorry. Cool. Yeah. So like as I mentioned uh, earlier, they did the work for this uh, for PFSense. Uh, and yeah, instead of having to wait for FreeBSD 13 to start playing with this, or, you know, you could use a dev snapshot or whatever, but they have a development snapshot of PFSense. So if you want to start trying out WireGuard, that's a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then if you think you have seen it all, uh, there is now NetBSD logo to going to the moon. Ooh. This is on over at NetBSD Advocacy. And uh, Jay Patel, I think, writes, Hello all, just informing to let the community know NetBSD logo is going to the moon. They have a Reddit thread there. And they got confirmation that this logo, the old NetBSD logo, will be on a drive to moon. Ooh, that's cool. I know the Artemis missions are starting to catch up, uh, but I didn't know that there's NetBSD involved. Yeah, you know, and mostly my interest in the Artemis missions has been that, you know, Canada is going to get to send an astronaut on one of them. But Yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah, really cool to send. Uh, it, although it says we're allowed to send 10 megabytes. It's like, can't, can't we get like most of a NetBSD install together? <laughs> right, a little bit of package source. <laughs> I guess the problem would be that uh, binary wouldn't make sense because you don't know what platform is going to be available when people find the time capsule. But yeah, 10 megabytes of source code seems like you could get a reasonable chunk of interesting source code. Yeah. Especially, you know, you can send like a, well, I guess there's a downside to sending like a super exzipped version of the source code is that that far in the future, will somebody have something that can unexip it? Yeah. Don't make that a zip uh, bomb where it's kind of getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> That'd be a really funny thing to do in a time capsule, <laughs> especially since in the future, it'd probably be that, oh, that many megabytes or, you know, that many terabytes of data or that many that million, billions of files is like nothing now. So it'd be like, <laughs> oh, so this contains a lot. Oh, it's supposed to be exploiting me, but it, it just can't go as fast as our storage should be done by now. Oh, <laughs> uh, cool. <laughs> I remember when you could hang a computer by just having like in... You basically whatever do beep loop yeah. and computer <laughs> forever <laughs> even even like a multitasking thing in windows with like visual basic you could lock the computer up with one process <laughs> yeah so this is uh yeah we will watch this if there's news from the moon and BS, the bsds are on in there on there around there somewhere very nice good and special thanks this week to tarsnap for sponsoring this episode of bsd now uh if you need backups whether you're paranoid or not, it's still the best way to do your backups. Head over to touchnap.com slash BSD now and start doing your backup. Uh, you can create an account. Uh, it's pay as you go. So you just deposit some money to get started and use it until you run out and then put in some more money. That means no surprise bills uh, and you're in control of everything. Tarshnap really is the best way to do a backup because it takes the data you want to back up. It segments it and deduplicates it to avoid sending the same data twice if it's in there. Uh, it finds just the unique blocks that have changed since your last backup, compresses them, encrypts and signs them with your key that never leaves your computer, and then sends them off to the cloud to be backed up where you'll be able to retrieve them uh, if you need them. Again, the keys are only on your computer and 
are required to be able to restore. So don't lose the key. Uh, but it also means, you know, because these backups are stored in the cloud, you don't have a way to ever be 100% sure they were deleted. But if you just destroy your keys and make new ones, you know that all the old backups are of no use to anyone. Yes. Uh, the thing that really makes a difference with Tarsnap is you get the source code for the client. So you can be absolutely sure that the client isn't sending your private keys off to the server. And, you know, there's not really any other backup mm. thing that does that. So head over to tarsnap.com and start doing your backups. I'm sure you'll write us an email thanking us when it saves your backup. Yeah, just do it regularly and uh, like from a cron job. And then when it happens, the bad times, then you can get back to normal sooner rather than later. All right, uh, before we go into the feedback and questions part of this episode, we have a little note from our producer JT here, who writes, hey everybody, it's JT. After our AMA episode, where he mentioned he was looking for older BSD retail copies, he was contacted by Andrew, who hooked him up with a bunch of OpenBSD disks from the 4.x era. So a good big shout out to him. Thank you, Andrew. And since that worked so well, <laughs> JT figured I, uh, he would give it another shot and ask that if anyone has any old Unixes that will run on an 8088, 8086, or 286, and you're willing to send him a copy of the disks, uh, he would be thankful for that. So he has re recently dug out an older 286 system. I mean, are they in the earth somewhere or what? Um, and he'd love to get a Unix on that running. Uh, he knows of Minix, Xenix, and Microport, but he hasn't been able to find many versions of them. He has found a Microport 1.3.3 and SCO Xenix, but that's about it. So let him know if you happen to have any other versions or know where he can find them. Okay, so JT is happy with uh, that note being out. And now we can get to our feedback and questions part. Here, this is the uh, part for you where you ask us questions. But if there aren't any ones sent to us, we'll be very sad. And this is a very boring, empty part of the show. So this is, goes to feedback at bsdnow.tv and anything, show ideas, things you always need, wanted to know from us or that, that you have a problem with, uh, computer-wise, BSD-wise, anything, let us know. The first one who did uh, was Christian with a ZFS replication and verification question. Uh, Christian uh, wrote, hi, first of all, congrats on your great show. Keep up the good work in 2021. Thank you. Glad you like it. I also have a question regarding ZFS replication, and I guess Alan's getting warm already, uh, and verification of a successful send and receive operation. I read FreeBSD Mastery ZFS and Mastery ZFS, uh, Advanced ZFS, as we do, and also posted this on the TrueNAS forums. Okay, so. Uh, uh, this is the story. I replicated all three datasets of my old TrueNAS core pool to a remote backup running Project Trident, up to date, before he went on going to destroy the old pool, thereby getting rid of the old galley encryption and creating a new pool with native encryption and otherwise the same properties. Then the datasets are to be restored in the new pool, same name, and everything should just feel and behave as before. I'm on a TrueNAS core 12.0 U1.1. The only pool is named data pool 1 and a RAID Z2. The remote uh, backup pool is named backup 1 and is a two disk mirror. Both pools are A shift 12 and record size 128 
and also share the rest of their properties. The three datasets are named shares, iocage, and mariadb underscore data. After replication, which seems to have went without errors, I'm seeing differences in the dataset sizes, mainly with iocage, but I can find some differences on all of the datasets. During the initial snapshot and full recursive replication, I did not stop any jails or services. But before I did the succeeding incremental replications, I stopped all jails and the NFS service every time. Now, how can I verify that everything is replicated as needed? Yeah, and then he has the output here. So the big thing, uh, so the thing he's complaining about is he sees, uh, you know, the copy of IOCage on backup one has a used value of 5.33 gigabytes, but on the data pool one where he restored it, it's now 7.19 gigabytes. Uh, and he's wondering, you know, did it not copy everything? Definitely the thing to look at there is the logical used property and the logical reference property as these are the size of the actual data. So, you know, if you put a one megabyte file in the ZFS data set, the logically used size will say one megabyte. If ZFS manages to compress that file, the used base will be less than a megabyte. And then, so referenced is uh, data that that data set is pointing to, whereas used includes things like uh, snapshots. So if you have an old snapshot, it will contain some other data. So after you replicate data, there's a couple different things that uh, can make it use different amounts of space. Uh, the first one is, it turns out replication actually does some defragmentation. You know, you send the files in logical order when you send them. And so they'll be nice and defragmented on the receiving side, whereas on the sending side, they could have been all over the place based on when you modified them and so on. Uh, but as you referred to, one of the big differences here is you're using RAID Z2. Um, so depending on how many disks you have in your RAID Z2, there might be a significant amount of padding that ends up happening. Uh, so with RAID Z2, every allocation of space in the pool must be equivalent or must round to three sectors. That is one plus the amount of parity, which is two in RAID Z2. Because you have a shift of 12, meaning four kilobytes, uh, that means that every allocation must be divisible by 12 kilobytes. Uh, it turns out 128 is not divisible by 12 kilobytes. And so you will have to pad that out. So uh, instead of using the 11 sectors that that would take to do 128k uh, in 12 kilobyte chunks, uh, it will actually be rounded up to the nearest number divisible by three, which would be 12, I guess. Uh, so you have an extra 4k of padding on a bunch of these blocks. Uh, now, how it works out will be different depending on how many disks you have in the RAID Z2 uh, as well. Uh, and uh, Matt Aaron's wrote a great article telling you know, how to stop worrying and love RAID Z. And it ex shows for all the different possible combinations how it works out. And, you know, every file could be different as well because, you know, just because your record size is 128K means if you write a 90 kilobyte file, it's not going to round it up to 128K. It's going to do the nearest, uh, you know, four kilobyte sectors that are needed. And then compression can also change things. It depends, you know, when you replicate it, if you use the dash C flag and copy the compressed version, it will stay the same. But if you do it the other way, you'll have to decompress it, send it and recompress it, which is normally not the best thing. But depending what the data is and how it was modified, redoing it that way might actually result in some gains in compression. But anyway, the main difference you're seeing there is in the, uh, the layout on the disk because of the RAID Z. Um, the best way to tell if your replication is complete is to compare the GUIDs of the snapshot. So if you do ZFS get GUID of, you know, backup one slash IO cage at the name of the snapshot, 
and then the same thing for data one slash arrowcage slash the name of this at the name of the snapshot. If they have the same GUIDs, then it's the same snapshot. Uh, and if the snapshot is there, it will be complete. If it's not complete yet, it'll uh, be marked as uh, a resumable one if you have resume, or it will get thrown away if it wasn't complete. And you know, ZFS replication checks the checksum as it goes. So in like 2012-ish ZFS, uh, there was one big checksum done at the end. Uh, so it would just checksum everything I was did and, and you sent the result of, the, the sender sent the result of the checksum at the end and you compared it to the one you calculated over the whole stream and decided if everything worked. Uh, but as part of resumable replication, they changed it so that each object has the checksum after it. And so the replication will stop if there's something that has the wrong checksum. So yeah, as long as the receive completes, uh, you should have exactly the same data. Okay, good to know. So yeah, uh, it's it's right to be alarmed by seeing the difference. But yes, like you said, comparing the logically used value is uh, a good way to uh, see that you end up with the same amount of data. Because the logically used value is the amount, is basically the sum of all of the, the size of all the files, uh, which is, you know, how much data you actually wrote, which has oftentimes no correlation to how much space it takes on ZFS because RAID Z can make it take more space and the padding and there's metadata and then, uh, or just in general, you know, compression. Uh, you know, it looks like you have 1.9 to one compression. And so one of the differences between the used and the logically used will be the big gains from uh, savings and compression. But yeah, it's it's normal to see the used be higher on RAID Z because of the, uh, the padding stuff. And, you know, you might consider uh, record size equals one megabyte because that means there'll be less padding overall and you might see less of a difference in the used versus but uh it's never going to be identical to a mirror i think even if the other side was also a mirror it might just not work out to be exactly the same uh but check the guids is a good way to be sure that the snapshots are the same one good and uh, then next we have uh how do you pronounce that name oh ian. Okay. easy enough <laughs> sorry uh, uh, ian uh with progress so he has wrote uh, a month ago roughly uh, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, he writes, Hi guys, I hope you are all having a good new year. Oh, so far so good. Uh, I contacted you guys a month ago about uh, starting projects to get into FreeBSD. I have decided to spin up a FreeBSD VPS in DigitalOcean and then set up Nextcloud, WordPress and WireGuard in separate jails. Ah, oh, that's a good project. I think commence at the end of the month when I can put time aside and report back on how the total newbie gets on. Yes, we want to know about this. In addition, in episode 385, you requested more feedback and talking points, so I have two for you. Excellent, someone listens to us. Okay, the first is, I have heard that one can install FreeBSD with a desktop environment with a very low footprint. I have a very old Asus EEPC netbook with a 4 gig SSD hard drive, but I cannot seem to get FreeBSD to fit. Can FreeBSD be installed on such a small disk? Yeah, uh, the FreeBSD install doesn't actually take even four gigs, although once you start adding a desktop, it can be. Uh, it also depends how you partition it. Uh, you know, the default puts rather a lot into swap and so on. You probably want to use pretty much all of the four gigs for uh, the file system. And yeah, with a 32-bit triple E PC, you probably don't want to use ZFS, whereas, you know, normally ZFS and the compression could end up making you able to fit, a, you know, five or six gigs of data in four gigs of space. Uh, but that's not really an option. So four gigs might be a little small. Uh, most of those triple EPCs have an SD card that's bigger than that. You might be able to 
slip an SD card in there to get uh, more space and put something like, say, user local, where it's going to put X and stuff on the SD card and, and just the OS on the 4 gig SSD. Okay. And the second question, uh, or part, I never knew until very recently that the streaming behemoth Netflix uses FreeBSD. This is really impressive. Would you care to talk about the relationships you have with Netflix? Is it ongoing? Do they influence the direction of the FreeBSD project? Are there any other big hitters using FreeBSD that we do not know about? I think you guys should fly the flag about this, as it is easy for people to think BSD is just for geeks and techies, while it is actual fact that it could be underpinning many things in our daily lives that we just take for granted. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the relationship between FreeBSD and Netflix is ongoing. Uh, Netflix contributes a lot of their changes back. You know, one of the reasons they chose to use FreeBSD for their system was not just because, you know, a bunch of the people happen to be from FreeBSD and know that they could get the expertise they need on networking and performance, but it was that when they had changes, they could upstream them back into FreeBSD and have them land in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas oftentimes trying to get something to be included in a mainline version of Linux is much more difficult uh, and takes a long time, especially you know if you're using some distro of Linux, it could be a very long time before that changes you put upstream actually end up downstream where you need them. Uh, whereas Netflix is using snapshots of the development version of FreeBSD that are usually only a couple of weeks behind the brand newest so that when they do commit changes, they can start using them quickly. Uh, so yeah, the Netflix has a good relationship with FreeBSD and it's ongoing. I don't know that say that they have influence on the direction of the project. They have a bit, but not in a bad way, if that makes sense. You know, they understand that FreeBSD has to be useful for things other than Netflix and that they can't just do stuff. What's best for them isn't necessarily what's best for the project. And they understand that. So they help FreeBSD uh, and help it go forward. Employing some developers, for example. And so they, yeah, they have, they have some influence, but not too much because that yeah, would be bad. So... Other big hitters, there are lots. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, you have your NetApp, Adele, Isilon, uh yeah, the Sony PlayStation uses FreeBSD, the 4 and the 4 for sure, the 5, we're pretty sure. Check out the free. So Juniper, NetApp, Isilon, Netflix. Yeah, the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, lots yeah, and lots of other The ones. Foundation, FreeBSD Foundation keeps a list of um, supporting companies and their yep. uh, like testimonials there. So check out their website. They have plenty of information about them i think we mentioned the yeah. most important ones i mean i think I mean, of course we missed a couple of right. but and, you know, it's a lot of companies others like we talked about like a uh, netgate that does pfsense uh contributes a lot back to freebsd and you know lots of other people um in our user group meeting yesterday uh martin krauser who we know um says you know he's starting working at a they started a new startup and, and they're using freebsd for their thing although we didn't get to hear much about it yet okay so yeah, there's lots of things using FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. But yes, you know, we could always do more to make sure yeah. people know that. The, the marketing side is always a bit of a, a low key on us, but now, well, we're getting better. Uh, so yeah, we look forward to your progress and let us know uh, how it goes. And thank you for sending us the question. And then we have Paul with an APU2 device question. And Paul writes, uh, Paul, uh, I recently got an APU2 device from PC Gear to use as a main router for my home network. It is just a PC with three NICs and no video cards, just a serial port. Perfect box to use as a network appliance with FreeBSD on it. 
have quite complex networks or network, so running something like PFSense does not meet my requirements. The life of the CCI is never easy, excellent. Uh, I need something which can handle multiple routing tables. I can easily create multiple routing tables, FIPS, in FreeBSD terms. My question is, how to route traffic between different FIPS? Obvious approach is to create multiple ePair interfaces, but on one side of ePair to FIPS and other one to some bridge group but IP addresses on ePair and use normal routing to send traffic between the FIPS. Is, uh, or will it work? But it looks ugly. I do not think uh, or like the idea of emulated transit between networking FIPS. Is it? Uh, it is just unnecessary. And it will reduce performance for sure. On proper routers like Juniper boxes, you can set up routes which has a FIP name as a next hop. All traffic matching that route will be sent to destination routing tables and routed from there. Now transit networks, nice and tidy. Is it possible to do something like that on a FreeBSD? I did not find any way to specify other FIPS on a man page for route. Is there a way to format traffic between FIPS directly without using transit networks? Um, like in general, when the when traffic comes in, FreeBSD is going to examine the FIB it came in on and look for a destination, yeah. One thing to look at definitely would be the uh, article we talked about a couple of weeks ago on using uh, VLANs, uh, uh, VNet jails, the uh, FreeBSD's way of having completely separate network stacks. Uh, so like FIBS, except for you get, rather than just a routing table, or multiple instances of routing table, you get multiple entire instances of the network stack with uh, VLANs to do routing. You could do something like that would be interesting there. Uh, that does end up using some ePairs, uh, but in a way that maybe will be less hairy. The other advantage of that is that you have multiple complete instances and network stacks, so you can do a couple more things with it, and it scales better uh, because each of these instances of the network stack will have all of its own locking. There won't be as much contention uh, because you know something needing to lock the routing table in instance three doesn't affect instance four, uh, and so on. But yeah, for the FIB routing, I don't actually know the answer to that off the top of my head. Maybe one of our viewers knows, then send us a follow-up question and we will cover it here so that everyone knows. Yeah, like uh, I've used FIBs before, but mostly in a case of uh, I have a jail that's, I need its default route to go out somewhere different. So like the default route on the host machine goes directly to the internet, but this jail I need to route out via a NAT gateway. Uh, and so I start the whole jail in a fib and say, you know, the default route for the jail is something different than the default route for mm -hmm. the host. I know the route command can route to a specific interface. And that interface can be in a fib. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I can see where it'd be complicated with the route command because the fib um, flag on the command line tells you which routing table to modify, not which routing table to send something to. Hmm. Yeah. You need to kind of address that. Although apparently the fib thing can take a list. So you can add a rule, make one route that applies to multiple fibs. But yeah, I guess it, it turns a bit on what you're trying to do, uh, what the right way to do it is. Uh, but I'm sure there's a way yeah, to Yeah, we'll it. pass this to the audience. Yep. Uh, also check out the BSD router project, bsdrp.net, I think. Um, they might have more on this type of setup, especially, you know, it's, it's basically an appliance, but meant for people that have CCIE and BGP type problems, not PFSense. Type yeah. Problem. Okay. But thanks for uh, sending us this question. 
And that pretty much wraps up this episode uh, of this week. We thank you for listening, as always. Let us know more things that are on your mind in feedback at bsdnow.tv. Thanks to the people on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash bsdnow. Of course, also on Twitter. Uh, we post there when there's a new show coming out, twitter.com slash bsdnow. And then thank you for listening and see you next week.